Yes, it's a, a short and sweet letter from John. And you'll find it on page 1229 in the Bibles. 1229. And it's John's second letter. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you all, visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Well, now, let's pray that we understand that passage. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we explore your word together, that you will enable us to see wonderful things emerge from it. And help us to apply its truth in our lives, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know how you feel about letters, uh, like John's letters, or how you feel about letters generally. Um, I have an elderly mother, uh, and uh, my brother and I have been helping to clear out her loft, um, and uh, generally try and sort things out in her house, and when we were clearing it out recently, we came across a suitcase that contained a bundle of letters, a whole thick bundle tied up with a ribbon. And... Um, uh, we, we looked at uh, uh, one of them, and they were from a man that she was engaged to 
to be married many, many years ago. Uh, not my father, because she broke the engagement off. Uh, but there was this thick, thick pile of letters. And um, uh, as we were looking at it, 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 it took us back, really, to the days when postmen wore peaked caps and there were two deliveries a day and, um, and uh, you know, people wrote letters to communicate with one another. We don't really do that these days, do we? We, we send emails and we have Facebook messages or uh, whatever it is. We communicate in lots of different ways. And yet, receiving a letter is somehow still quite important. If you want to say something important to somebody, you really want them to register it, you write them a letter. Have you noticed how if people are fundraising, they'll write you letters rather than email you because they, they want you to register it? Uh, when I moved into... Um, well, I'm about to move into a house where I'm going to be based, and someone sent me a present, and it was a present with that, the house address printed on this really high-quality paper, uh, and, I, and I thought, oh, the joy of opening that and, and reading it, you know, if you, if you get one of those from me, you know you'll, you're special, uh, <laughs> because I've reserved this special paper for you. Well, uh, th so much for letters. Uh, I think this was a letter in uh, 2 John that, uh, despite being uh, the shortest letter in the New Testament, wasn't uh, just a quick note that he dashed off. It was uh, very important. He had important things to say. He wanted people to register what he was saying. Now, if you were here yesterday, you'll know that we were looking uh, at a part of 1 John where uh, 1 John was telling us about our identity as Christians. We are children of God. And John was very keen that they should know what their status was so that they should live up to it. And he particularly wanted to stress this because the church was being troubled by false teachers um, and people couldn't quite distinguish between someone who was the real thing and someone who was um, a counterfeit uh, teacher. And he was saying, look, if you're one of the children of God, you're the real thing. And how you tell the difference between the real thing and the counterfeit thing is by looking at what people do in their lives. And he said, if you practice righteousness, that shows that you've got the family likeness. You're, you're following in the family likeness, uh, and you are indeed in Christ. And if you are advocating something that's sinful, and if you're making a practice of it in your lives, then you know that there's a question mark about whether that person knows Jesus or not. Now, it's quite a straightforward test in some ways, isn't it? What are people like in their lives? Are they showing Christ in their lives? Uh, of course, the trouble is that uh, that can make us all feel guilty because we all know how in our everyday life we've let Christ down. And we were seeing yesterday how it's not a question of whether we uh, ever sin because we all do, it's a question of making a practice of it. It's, what we're, it's the direction we're going in. Uh, what are we showing in our lives about who we are attached to? So that was yesterday, as we looked at our identity as children of God. Now today, in 2 John, here is a letter uh, written uh, urgently, written seriously, uh, probably written by the Apostle John, uh, maybe at the time of writing he was the only surviving apostle. Uh, and he writes to a particular church whom he describes as the chosen lady, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. 
And the reason for thinking that this is a church rather than a particular individual is that uh, in the Greek, the Greek for lady here is Kyria, which is the female form of Kyrios, meaning Lord. So when Jesus is described as Lord in the New Testament, it's Kyrios. And here he addresses Kyria. It's as though he's referring to the bride of Christ, isn't he? The female version, the bride of Christ. And so here is John saying to the Lord's special bride and her children, in other words, the church members. And his serious message is all about keeping on track when there are many pressures on us to introduce changes to the main message of Christianity. Over breakfast this morning, I was chatting to Clive about people who were on the executive of his Christian union when he was at university. And he was talking about some who are still going strong in the faith, still have, uh, uh, some have become ordained and um, uh, have got great ministries, and others who also at the time were very keen, um, uh, nevertheless, even if they were ordained, have gone off the ball and are now advocating things that you'll never find written in the New Testament or approved of uh, in the Gospel. There are many pressures on us to change what we believe about Christianity and about what the Bible teaches. And they come from lots of different directions, not just the pressure from society around, but from within the church. And indeed, uh, you know, even though we're in the Church of England, we can be affected by what others in other denominations say. A couple of years ago, the Pope said, uh, uh, well, he was reported as saying, I don't know if he actually said this, but he was reported as saying that if you didn't believe in God, but followed your conscience, you would nevertheless be accepted in heaven. Now, I, I know it's easy to take remarks out of context, uh, 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 but, you know, as soon as that message was registered, everybody loved it, uh, and, and the newspapers were full of what an inclusive message it was, and, and how good it was. Everybody approved it. But it's not the Christian message. It's not the gospel. And yet, that sort of thing puts us under pressure to start to modify our beliefs when the world around is longing for us to say something different. So under this sort of pressure that all Christians face to modify what we believe, what does John the Apostle have to say? Three things I want to point out from 2 John. First of all, there is truth to follow. There is truth to follow. Verse 4. I rejoiced greatly, or it has given me great joy, to find some of your children walking in the truth. The Christian life is a journey, isn't it? Uh, when we put our trust in Christ, we start a journey. We don't know what lies ahead, what challenges we're going to face, but the great thing is that we have Jesus Christ himself alongside us as we face them. Some people, of course, construe the Christian journey as something that's going to take us into entirely new directions, away from the Bible. We start there, but we move on. But that's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about something called the truth. 
So verse 2 says, the truth abides in us or lives in us and will be with us forever. So what's he talking about, about this a walk with Christ, and yet it's a walk with the truth. How does he hold all that together? Well, back in 1 John 5, verse 7, he has referred to the spirit of truth. And that's really what he's getting at, that the Holy Spirit is given to us when we become Christians, and he is the one who helps remind us of the truth that we can read about in the Word of God and brings it home to us uh, in very relevant ways. So I wonder how Jesus' spirit has helped you in the past week. Perhaps there's been a time when a particular verse has come to mind which has just helped you. Uh, Or you had a conversation with a Christian friend that got you thinking differently about something. Or you picked something up in a house group Uh, Or maybe as soon as you said or did something, you felt guilty. uh, And you knew that you needed to correct it. I remember the last time I just sat in a church and and wasn't doing anything up front, uh, the thing that struck me most of all was one particular verse that the leader uh, said during the course of the service um, that just struck me completely freshly. And I realised how it needed to apply in my life. Well, the Holy Spirit works in all our lives to bring home the truth to us, doesn't he? But why does John describe this journey that we make as Christians as following the truth, rather than, for example, saying, follow the Spirit? And he wants us to know that the truth isn't just what feels right to us at the time, Truth is something that is real, solid, and absolute. It's very easy to fool ourselves about that. Very easy to fool ourselves about what the truth is. Um, Not so long ago, I took a a wedding for um, a a lad from my previous church who'd become a Christian uh, when he came to the church, and indeed, um, members of his family had become Christians, but his father despite um, taking an initial interest in it, um, had not pursued it, and subsequently had got divorced uh, from this boy's mother. Uh, But there I was, taking this boy's wedding, and his divorced parents were both there. Um, And I was, um, his his father sat down and chatted to me, because um, he couldn't understand why I'd not mentioned the fact that he also had done a Christianity Explored course with me. Um, And I said, well, the reason was that you never completed it. Um, And he said, well, I I thought I had. Um, And um, and, 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 uh, then I started talking to him about uh, what had happened between him and his wife. And he presented me with subtly different facts about what had happened. Um, So he, um, he, he, he described... Uh, the the events that had led up to his divorce. Now, I knew that family. I knew what had happened. I had spent hours with his wife as she was weeping uh, uh, as a result of the divorce. I knew what had happened, and I heard him describe what had happened, uh, and I thought, that's not what happened at all. And 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 I said, well, are you sure about that? Because... 
I, I thought this, this, and this. And, and he said to me, well, it's certainly as I remember it. Over the years, he had persuaded himself that his different take on the facts was true. And we're all prone to doing that, aren't we? To justifying our behaviour uh, by reinterpreting uh, the truth. And it happens time and again uh, in the church. You find people in the church talking about being led by the Spirit into new things. And you find it time and again. Not so long ago, a report was produced in the Church of England called the Pilling Report. Um, it was a, a working group chaired by Sir Joseph Pilling, uh, made up of eminent people, who were going to um, explore where all of our discussions on the topic of sexuality had got us uh, over the years and where we ought to be going next. Um, and um, uh, the report said that everybody was agreed that uh, the Church of England lived under the authority of the Bible and that we needed to respect what the Bible had to say about these things. But then what it did was it took a traditional interpretation of the Bible um, and then it obviously had scrambled around somewhere for some other alternative explanation that took a completely different view, put the two together, presented them as equal in weight, and then said, well, since it's not entirely clear what the Bible teaches on this topic, we will have to have uh, a period of discussion within the church so that we can see where the Spirit is leading us. That was an interesting exercise, wasn't it? So we can see where the Spirit is leading us. Um, uh, what it was saying was the Bible doesn't tell us, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to see where the Spirit is going to help us make up our minds. Now, the danger is that is, with that is, is very obvious, isn't it? There are certain things we want to compromise on, so we make up our minds that it constitutes the truth, and we describe it as Spirit-led. But John says that with Jesus Christ, it's not like that. He says that uh, those who are following the truth believe in revealed truth, things we wouldn't have known if God hadn't shown them to us. So he says in verse 5, we've had God's commands from the beginning. Verse 6, he says, as you have heard from the beginning. And the key to following this truth that we've heard from the beginning is, is in verse 9. It's not to go ahead of it and to make things up for ourselves, but to abide in the doctrine of, of, of Christ. Running ahead can be exciting. When a cyclist breaks from the pack during a cycle race, everyone's, you know, agog. They want to see, you know, whether he's going to shoot off uh, and, and win the race. It is exciting when someone does that. Uh, and when someone in the church shoots off ahead, it can be exciting and it can draw people with them. But verse 9 says, no, we're not to run ahead, rather we're to continue. In other words, don't run when you should be walking. And in, uh, if you were reading this in the English Standard Version, you would read that phrase, walking in the truth, time and time again. Running ahead may be exciting. What the Pope says about atheists being in heaven may seem progressive. But, says John, 
if we don't stick with the truth, we'll be pushing the spirit out and thereby pushing God out. Now that may seem very restrictive. Always following the Bible, never branching out. That might seem very restrictive. But it's a little bit like a map. If you're on a journey, uh, you don't swap a map for another one just because the going is difficult. Nor do you redraw the lines on the map to make it look easier. Either of those things is going to lead you to getting lost. No, you stick with the map. First of all then, there is truth to follow. Now secondly, love to show. If there's truth to follow, there is love to show. Verses uh, 5 and 6. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now, being someone who follows the truth doesn't mean becoming a hard-faced Bible basher who cares more about sticking with pure doctrine than caring for people. On the contrary, following the truth always results in loving behaviour. And if your behaviour is not loving, then you're not following the truth. Now, that's a difficult thing to hold on to, isn't it? But it is not loving to tell people lies. It is not loving to keep people from finding salvation just because it's got hard edges to it. It's not a loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to follow the truth and to speak truth, but to do so in love. In other words, not to win an argument, not to score a point, but because you love somebody else and you want to show Christ's love to them. Um, and that is inevitably going to influence the way you say things. There's, there certainly are some ways in which you can speak to people that are very abrasive, unnecessarily so, because we've not addressed them in love. We've not been sort of really looking out for what will enable them to understand more easily and clearly uh, what the Bible has to say. And we are guilty of this, of, of not doing things in love from time to time. In the parliamentary debates that took place on the same-sex marriage uh, bill, as it then was, several MPs and Lords talked of the very harsh way in which some churches had treated gay couples who had walked in. Now, some of these criticisms were misplaced. Uh, there was one that I can recall uh, where Ben Bradshaw MP quoted an evangelical church in Exeter as being um, uh, very uncaring in their approach to a gay couple. And so the rector of St. Leonard's in Exeter, the evangelical church in question, 
went to see Ben Bradshaw afterwards. And uh, when Brad, Bren, Bradshaw realised what the actual facts were, he accepted that there had been nothing harsh at all in the behaviour that had been demonstrated. But in some of the cases, uh, it must have been true. Uh, and, um, and, and, if, and if it was, then it is important to remember that there was nothing faithful about that church's behaviour because it wasn't something that they did in love. Now, it is right to say that God's word restricts sexual intimacy to heterosexual marriage. But it's also the case that we are told to love our neighbour as ourselves, to answer others with respect, uh, and so on. So you cannot be unloving and claim to follow the truth. The two go hand in hand. Now, wonderfully, I think that those churches which are close to the word of God are loving in their behaviour and vice versa. I think it does happen. People often remark on churches as being very warm and welcoming uh, when those churches are actually the keenest to uh, help people understand what's in the word of God. And why is it that truth and love do go so firmly together? Why are these two so firmly linked? And the answer is because it's the Spirit of Christ who indwells us. And you just think about that. It's the Spirit of Christ. Now, what is true of Christ? What's true of Christ is that he gave everything he had for the sake of sinners. He didn't stint, did he, to be in their company. He didn't concern himself with how it would look. You know, you, you think about how he, he would go to, to, to new places, and you'd think that what would be foremost on his mind was sort of establishing his ministry when he got there. You'd think that foremost on his mind would be to gain a hearing from as wide a group of people as possible. And yet, yet he enters a new place, and he sees this wretched tax collector, in fact, chief of tax collectors, up in a tree to get a good view. And he says, I, I want to come and eat with you today. I'm actually going to be accepting your hospitality, eating with you. Me, a rabbi, you, uh, an outcast. I'm going to link with you. He didn't care how people saw it. He didn't care who they associated with. And yet he did it. And if we love Jesus Christ, if we're following him, We'll have his spirit within us. We'll love the people that he loves, that he longs to reach. But as our passage makes clear, loving others doesn't always come naturally to us. Uh, it's that great quote, um, to be above with the saints, yeah, to be above with the saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To be below with the saints we know, that's a different story. <laughs> um, and we know what that's like, don't we? We know that there are very awkward people in the church that, um, you know, there we are, serving hard, doing our best, and up they come and make it clear we could have done it so much better. Um, uh, and um, they just sort of make you want to explode. So loving others may not come naturally, and that's why we are to remember 
in verses 5 and 6 that we do actually have a command to love. In other words, in the Christian church, love starts as a matter of the will very often before it engages the emotions. So I decide to obey the command to love. I will offer hospitality, even when I wouldn't normally have invited that couple around. I will get alongside that individual and chat to them, even though normally I would have avoided them like the plague. I will do this. And as I do, well, so I discovered that other things fall into place. Um, in my 16 years as a vicar, because I was the vicar, I, w I had no choice. I had to talk to everybody. Um, and there were some people that, you know, initially I dreaded the thought of, you know, having to spend time chatting to them because they seemed so sort of starchy and so likely to disapprove of nearly everything I was doing uh, in the church. You know, you, you, it doesn't give you a great incentive to talk to them, does it? But I remember one couple. I think throughout my entire 16 years of ministry, they didn't approve of a single thing I did. But the difference was that I had spent time with them, and I loved them, and they loved me. And even though they didn't agree with a single thing I did, they supported me in everything. Um, and as I'd got to know them, this hard-faced woman, um, I discovered so much in the background that wouldn't have been obvious. I discovered that, you know, she'd lost her daughter when her daughter was 12 years old. Uh, I discovered that actually, behind the scenes, she was doing an awful lot of visiting. She was cooking for people, she was helping, she was providing. She was doing all sorts of things that weren't obvious behind her disapproving stare at, you know, whatever it was I was doing in the church. Uh, it wasn't obvious, but once we got to know that, and once they got to understand what it was that, you know, I was simply trying to achieve for the sake of the gospel, they were fully willing to overlook all their disapproval. And love trumped the whole lot. It starts with the will. We make the effort to do this. And then we will discover that other things follow. So there we are. We have the command. We have uh, 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 that requirement uh, to love others, to follow all of God's commandments. And of course, when we follow all of God's commandments, well, you know, the command to give, to pray, to bear with one another, to rebuke privately, to encourage, all of those things are loving behavior. And we do them all. So truth to follow, love to share, and then thirdly and finally, wickedness to avoid. Wickedness to avoid. It's one thing to have the world around us urging us to relax our sexual ethics, to be less evangelistic with the gospel, you know, just, you know, keep it to yourself, it's a private matter, don't share it, don't be open about it. It's quite another to have church leaders themselves pressing us to downplay the significance of the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. But such people have always troubled the church. So in verse 7, we read of deceivers who have gone out into the world. 
Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Now, uh, who were these people? Well, they were clearly people who had decided to skip church meetings and instead sop up the world's way of thinking. They were at one stage in the church, but when they first left, they probably weren't deceivers. They probably didn't think of themselves that way. They were just discontented for some reason or another. But after a period away from the church and after a period in the, church, in the world, they didn't stay away from the church. They came back. And with them, they brought all of the subtle ways of rethinking the Christian faith that they had sopped up to make adopting the world's pattern more palatable. And in John's time, these deceivers were people who were suggesting that Christ hadn't been truly human. To them, that helped to make sense of things. But by saying it, they completely undermined the gospel. After all, if Jesus wasn't really human, then he couldn't really be said to be our representative, could he? And if he wasn't really our representative, standing in for us when he died, then actually we haven't had the sacrifice for our sins that the Bible tells us we have had. Their teachings about Jesus completely undermined God's great work of salvation. And that's why John describes their work in verse 11 as wicked. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. And it's not as though they were just putting forward a variation on a Christian theme. You see, anything that denies people salvation is wicked, isn't it? And if they are presenting a version of Jesus that will effectively deny people an understanding of the cross and of therefore of their salvation. It is wicked. Now, the way these teachers operated, they depended on people putting them up in order to have the means for survival while they preached in the various churches they visited. So, I've been invited here this weekend to come and uh, speak at your teaching weekend. Um, and, um, you know, uh, Clive uh, has, has uh, just offered to put me up. Uh, I think his wife had something to do with it as well. Uh, they, they, they've offered to put me up. And thereby, they've made possible my preaching here. Now, actually, if they hadn't done that, I could have still gone ahead, because the church commissioners are sufficiently generous to give me a budget that would have allowed me to stay somewhere locally. Uh, and I could have done, although John Ellison did check with me yesterday to see where I was staying and was, was, was um, offering to put me up if I hadn't got anywhere. But that was a, in the early church, they didn't have, you know, um, uh, quality inns and um, all, all the rest of it. In the early church, the only way in which peripatetic teachers could get around to different churches was if the local congregation actually uh, enabled it to happen, gave them hospitality when they arrived. And that's why John says, don't make their wicked ministries possible. Don't take them into your house or welcome them 
anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now that's why he says it. Not because he's saying, you know, don't, don't be courteous and don't offer them lunch. He's, he's effectively saying, don't make their ministries possible. So today, we also have to be discerning about times when church leaders depart from the Bible's teaching, and we have to work out whether what's at stake is indeed a salvation issue. Because if it is, it's not enough just to ignore it and say, well, we don't want any part of that. We have to ask, is there anything we're doing that makes their wicked work possible? Because if there is anything that we're doing that makes it possible, we ought not to do it. Now, that is difficult. It's difficult in the Church of England uh, with the parish uh, share system that we have, uh, where money is uh, uh, um, allocated on the base, you know, in this diocese, you know, it's dependent on attendance, and depending on what the regular attendance is, you pay a certain amount to the diocese, and the idea is that that money is there to support the ministry of the Church of England. So it, it pays for Clive and, uh, and, and the housing, and it pays for any curates you might have. It doesn't pay for all of the staff, but just the, 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 the clergy. It pays for certain central services, the safeguarding, the human resource work in the diocese, and so on. So it pays for all those things, and it's quite right to be paying for that. But uh, on the other hand, there are churches that pay extra that, in other words, the amount they're paying more than covers their own expenses, and, uh, and therefore any extra that's going in is going to support others. So the question is, which others is that money supporting? And there are some dioceses where, uh, because of concerns about what is being taught, either by the bishop or by uh, various clergy in the parish, um, evangelical parishes are very concerned to say, no, we'd rather take that extra bit of money and, and apply it to Bible-believing churches ourselves rather than have you support people that we, uh, we, we think may be engaged in wicked work. Uh, the, uh, uh, it, it causes all sorts of headaches when that happens. And it doesn't always, it doesn't, it doesn't always get applied uh, properly. So I was in one diocese recently where I heard that there were some churches doing this, but what they'd done was they had said, we're not going to pay any parish share at all, uh, but we will apply money to the support of ministry around the place. Uh, and what, it, what, what nobody in the church knew was whether what they were raising and spending was actually covering, covering their own expenses or not. They had no idea. Uh, so it did seem to me um, um, an unfair way of trying to put this sort of text into practice. But there are ways in which it can be done, and there are plenty of people around us that just say, look, those are the rules of the game. Uh, you know, if you're, in, you're, if, if you're in a club, you, you obey the rules of the club, and so on. But we're not in a club. Uh, we're in the church of God. Um, and John is quite clear, isn't he? Don't share in their wicked work. Well, fortunately at the moment, the great thing uh, about the Church of England is that doctrinally it is absolutely biblical. There is no line it has taken that is contrary to the Bible's teaching. There are plenty of individuals advocating changes. 
plenty of individuals around who want us to do things differently, but actually, no, the core doctrine of the Church of England is founded on the Holy Scriptures and in such teachings of the ancient fathers as are agreeable to the said Scriptures. In particular, it's to be found in the Book of Common Prayer, the Ordinal and the 39 Articles. So, it's all great stuff. It's all great stuff, and therefore we can be happily part of the Church of England and happily uh, contributing to uh, the well-being of the Church. But if there came a time when decisions were taken that led to conclusions which were not gospel conclusions, if, for example, people started saying, this sort of activity you have hitherto regarded as sin from which you needed to be saved, heretofore, that's the position, now uh, we're going to say, no, it's no longer sin, it is actually activity which we can regard God as blessing. Now that is a dividing issue, isn't it? Because it's a gospel issue. It's a matter of salvation. Are we encouraging people to do something for which they will be judged? Are we encouraging them to stay away from something because they've been saved? Well, these are issues that we're going to have to to um, address in due course, maybe. Hopefully we won't have to, but maybe we will have to. And if so, we need to bear in mind John's teaching in 2 John. There are other ways, of course, in which we can show that we don't want anything to do with those who are being wicked in putting forward a false gospel. Um, recently, there's been a meeting of the primates of the Anglican Communion um, uh, widely predicted that it would break up during the course of the meeting because of disagreements amongst these heads of the Anglican churches around the world uh, 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 over uh, this issue of sexuality. Uh, fortunately, it didn't break up. Um, I say fortunately because given that they've all held together and given that they've said no, that what the US church has done has been a, a departure from the faith, um, and uh, so far as the majority of us are concerned anyway, it's been a departure from the faith, and therefore there are consequences from doing that. Um, since they've done that, that may actually help us in this country not to rock the boat by going further down that direction ourselves. So hopefully that will have helped us. But uh, that meeting just reminded us, didn't it, that there are some primates of the Anglican Communion who are very keen indeed to take a stand for the truth as it's revealed in the Bible. And one of the things that we can do uh, in showing where we stand is to support them and to do so by uh, making sure that we're signed up to the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans. Um, this is the, the, the international group uh, of people that want to um, uh, stand firmly with what the Bible says rather than move on to wherever the, quotes, spirit end quotes, appears to be taking us when uh, churches like the US church move away on sexuality. So we can, we can join these organisations, we can um, support what John is doing uh, within the Anglican mission in England and so on, and these are all great ways of showing where we're standing. And we do need to do that, because uh, if we don't, well, we won't really be continuing to walk in the truth we will be in danger of joining others in running ahead. Pray God that we have the joy 
of sticking firmly with the truth, showing it in love with one another and avoiding wickedness. Amen. So uh, you just touched in that talk on uh, salvation issues. Would you like to expand on what, what you mean by salvation issues? Um, what, what, what are things which are included in salvation issues and what, what are issues which are not salvation issues that are maybe second order or, or third yeah. order? Thank you for that. Um, yeah, the difference between first order issues and second order issues, salvation issues and, and issues where we can agree to disagree. Um, uh, the, um, if you take as an example the whole issue of men's and women's ministry in the church, of women being bishops or those of us who disagree with women being bishops, um, I see that as uh, a second-order issue uh, where we can agree to be in the same church even though we hold different views, so long as we're making provision for one another. Uh, and it's a way of accommodating each other. Uh, it's a second-order issue. Why is it a second-order issue? Well, uh, because uh, those, uh, there are people on both sides of the argument who say that they respect the authority of Scripture and their understanding of where Scripture leads them is in that direction. Now, I don't actually think that it is... That, you know, I wouldn't take the view I do if I felt that was a genuinely good way of interpreting the Bible. But nevertheless, I have to recognize that there are people who sincerely hold that view. They respect the authority of the Bible. That is a primary issue, respecting the authority of the Bible, because if we don't have that, we don't know what salvation is, do we? We've got nothing to reveal it to us. Um, so that's a primary issue. However, the way we, we reach conclusions and then apply it is a secondary issue, and so we can agree to disagree. When it comes to sexuality, that is a primary issue because it's, it does affect our salvation. If, if you believe a different thing from me on men's and women's ministry, that's just a matter of church order and it's, and it's a disagreement between us. It's not going to affect our salvation. Uh, if you believe one thing and I believe another, uh, and we both trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, then we are both saved. Uh, and one isn't less saved than the other. It's a matter of church order. But on sexuality, um, uh, whilst the Bible, uh, whilst the orientation of somebody is, you know, uh, neutral in terms of its moral content, you know, it's, neither, it's not sinful to be oriented one way or another. It's what you do that constitutes uh, whatever is regarded as sinful. And you get something like 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor, uh, sorry, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These are things that we are saved from, and we need to be saved from them. And we are saved by Jesus Christ, 
and been transformed as a result. Now, there is an argument here about just what is covered by these phrases when it comes to sexuality, what's covered by the phrase male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. Those are particular translations of Greek words that actually could be translated much more generally. Uh, said it wasn't homosexual offenders, but it was uh, a more general description of people uh, um, uh, engaging in same-sex activity. It, it can be interpreted that way. Um, if you have a look at how the ESV translates that. Um, 1 Corinthians 6. Let's just have a quick look. Um, so 1 Corinthians 6 uh, says, um, do, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So that's given a more general translation to it. So the issue then is, is this something we, if it's, it's a salvation issue, because it's something that needs to lead to repentance and salvation. 